Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, August 9th, 2020. We're sort of back on schedule. Yes, we're getting back slowly but surely. And uh, so here we are, basking in the sun. Yes. We've had torrential downpours this week. And uh, it's nice and hot most now. of the gutters are working. Yeah. I'm glad to All say. All you need is a majority. That's, that's uh, my really? understanding. Really? Really? Yeah. Um, and uh, kudos yeah. to Mark, yes. who fixed the driveway already. For now. Every time it rains, it's, it's unfixed. But that's, you know, I appreciate him working on that. It's, it's been pretty hard rain, and we're catching up in terms of, uh, you know, rain totals. That's what matters. Yeah, when that's it rains here, um, most of our gravel driveway yes. flows away yes, when true. it rains hard. And we get these incredible crevasses. Yeah. Yeah, or ruts. Depending on how you look at it, it's rough. So, but, but in any event, so, uh, but we had a good week and, uh, we saw an interesting, uh, film. We didn't have a good week. I, yes, we did. It was recovery week. Oh, we had a good I week. I was doing laundry oh, non-stop. You're, you're at the top of your game. I was Tamsin. catching up on bills. Yeah, you're, you're, you're uh, but you're. It was an abominable week. You come week. back from Block Island completely energized and we're both totally fit. Uh, you look great. Speak for yourself. You look great. You can tell me now I look great. This would be you, a good time. Now that you've had a haircut, yeah. you look great. Thank you very much. We just got to do something about that beard. Well, I don't know. Nothing nothing good can come of that beard. Sorry, I failed you in that department. You married the wrong guy. You wanted a guy with a big, thick red beard. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> hey. So, I was just thinking of that baseball player. What's his name? Justin Turner. Oh. Yeah. Oh. I'll, I'll come back to him later. Not my dream, yeah, dream he, date. He is a not a good-looking man. I, I, but I, I think some people think he is. No. I think it's a certain taste. No. <laughs> no. But, but he's a good baseball player. He's a very good hitter. Yes. Uh, so we, uh, you spotted a documentary. You know, we do, at the end of each evening, or the beginning of each evening, have to make a selection of what we might watch uh, with the group here uh, on television. And you know, usually it's streaming. And every once in a while, you know, we could sort of take turns, I guess. And you piped up and said, I want to watch a documentary called Howard. And Howard turns out to be a documentary about Howard Ashman, who was the lyricist and perhaps a little bit of a book writer uh, on several musicals, in particular animated musicals. It was sort of his story. Uh, and I thought it was pretty interesting. What yeah, it think? was his story. Yeah. His story. And... uh you know, by hook or by crook, we've been watching more documentaries lately. Right. And it has all the limitations of a docu documentary. Meaning? It's informative, but sometimes is more detailed than you can absorb. More than you need to know. I think, well, I think if you're an, already an expert in the subject, you're yes. probably saying, wow, this doesn't even come close. Right. Uh, but if you're totally ignorant, you're saying, do I have to know every little bit? Um, but it was riveting. Even so, the well, story let, of his Well, let's talk career. about who he is so people can follow it. So he, he was uh, a theater geek. He was interested in theater in school. He helped start a, uh, uh, something called the WPA Theater uh, in New York with a close friend of his. Uh, and he gravitated ultimately to writing uh, lyrics for songs, although he was interested in all aspects of theaters, theater. And in terms of credits, uh, the first production that got some notice was something at his little theater uh, based on the Vonnegut novel called God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. That became the name of his uh, small musical, which met with uh, some acclaim. Uh, and you tell me it was recently revived by Encores a year ago, or two years ago, uh, which is uh, something. Uh, it was kind of like four years ago. That's, to me, that's one year or two ago. <laughs> right. um, and uh, then his big success on Broadway was Little Shop of Horrors, I wrote with Alan Menken. Alan Menken was a lyricist. Uh, sorry, was the person who wrote the music. And, of course, uh, Ashman was writing the lyrics. Uh, and uh, that's a pretty well-known musical at this point. And that, too, was revived a year or so ago. I think that really was a year yeah. or so ago. Um, Unless. Then he uh, he embarked on uh, an attempt to make a musical out of the movie. Uh, what was the name of that movie again? Smile. Smile, that's right. It's about uh, beauty pageants. And he worked with Marvin Hamlish. And that was a big setback because that was a failure. And it opened on Broadway and closed pretty shortly afterwards. Uh, and this caused him to go out to California and become uh, involved in, I should say, perhaps even the leading creative force behind the resurgence of the Disney 
uh, musical animation movies. And of course, we're talking about The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast in Aladdin. And um, well, that's why we, that's why we're interested in it. Yes, of okay. Course. We all know I that. mean, you've given this whole tangled story. Well, you got to know who he I, is. You know, no, who he is was yeah. he? He was an amazing lyricist. Yeah. And he, but he was also a crafter. He was a playwright. He was a director. Yeah. He had a vision for these different works um, that he was able to affect. Sometimes, uh, you know. Sometimes not. Right. Uh, the the, um, the partnership with uh, Hamlish uh, didn't really work at all, yeah, apparently. Work, right. And it wasn't even totally clear, I thought, from the documentary as to why not. Yeah. But anyway, he just, the idea, I didn't, you know, I didn't even really know his name, but clearly knew his works. Right. Okay. And uh, we had kids who were of beginner, movie-going age when... Uh, Little Mermaid came about. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, I was not excited. We had been to various kids' movies, and uh, they were mostly terrible slogs. And uh, you're saying, oh, God, I've got to sit through this. And uh, I remember so clearly uh, around uh, around Thanksgiving going to see Little Mermaid, and it blew my mind. Uh, this was engaging, uh the lyrics were fun and interesting, mm -hmm. and there was a life to this production that, you know, I hadn't seen in a long, long time. And clearly, I was not the only person. And of course, the outstanding one was Beauty and the Beast. Oh, no, no. I think The Little Mermaid was better than oh, Beauty no, and the Beast. No, oh, no, no, no. Heads, heads, yeah. that. clearly. No. No, I get much more of a charge out of the lyrics Are you of, kidding? of Beauty and the Beast. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. All I know is, look, I'll agree I mean, with we, you this time. We need we need uh, all the kids here to discuss we this. We took the kids to see Little Mermaid on the day it opened, which was a Thanksgiving. And well, I, in at the day it opened in our neighborhood, that's right. shall we say. And I, I think that's where it opened everywhere. And I was blown away, as I think you were blown away. And anyway, it, it really gives you an insight into how these were put together. There were serious projects. There were doubts. There were risks. Uh, everyone was invested. No one more than Howard Ashman, and apparently he was behind almost every bit of it. And he was a fantastic talent. The sad story, of course, is that he eventually contracted AIDS and he, he died. He was of diagnosed AIDS. Yeah. while working on Little Mermaid. Right, and then and even he, after that, well, and he, he continued to work for the next couple know, years. He was basically working on his deathbed. Yes, and uh, then there, there was he. For, Aladdin and, and, the then, and then uh, Beauty, Beauty and the Beast. Uh, strangely, they started Aladdin before Beauty and the Beast, although Beauty and the Beast was released before. But we don't have to go into that detail. There are, and there are also some... Really? Because you just did. There are just some amazing things. They also show you the recording of the songs in Beauty and the Beast for a few minutes. And tell me that wasn't great uh, when they had Angela Lansbury and Jerry Orbach yes. in the studio. Yes. I mean, Jerry Orbach. Oh, my God. I yeah. mean, is he unbelievable? Yeah. He, Lenny Briscoe, right, from Law and Order, wanders in there, and he can't contain himself. He's singing, he's dancing, he's gesturing, he's singing. Well, so was she. Be my guest. So was she. With, yeah, fame, was with Phony Friends. Lansbury, they were absolute pros. Well, he, she was cracking up uh, listening to him and watching him in the next booth. Uh, they were fantastic. Well, also great was the story about uh, that uh, Ashman had to fight to... Get that one song. Keep that one song. Yeah. Part of... Uh, Part of your world. World. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and Little Mermaid. Yeah. And, and he had to fight to do Aladdin. Cat Jeffrey Katzenberg, there's, there's a villain. It's Jeffrey Katzenberg who said, number one, I don't want that song, which is now one of the top Disney songs ever. And number two, who said, that Aladdin stuff is boring. Let's not do it. <laughs> uh, so not the entertainment genius he set out to be. But in any event, it's a touching story about Ashman, as was often the case, about a tremendously creative... Uh, individual who has fantastic projects, a very interesting story. So we recommend it. Yeah, we do recommend it. But it, it is a documentary. But, you know, interesting, interesting mind. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a sad, sad loss yeah. Yeah. for the theater and a, a sad, sad loss for Broadway. Well, I. Because I, that, yeah. that was one of the things that uh, you were familiar with uh, that uh, right. um, Frank Rich wrote, you know. Uh, in the late 1980s, Frank Rich wrote a column, and I only know this, I don't remember it, because I'm reading a book of his reviews, in which he said, uh, challenges for Broadway 
and one of them, a lot of talents going to California, number one, uh, Howard Ashman. And I'm going, Howard Ashman? And that's who, that's what he was. This yeah. is before he wrote anything for Disney. Yeah. Uh, Frank Rich is saying, this is the guy. Yeah. And in the documentary, Ashman does say it's possible that animation is the future for him. Of theater. I think he was well suited to it, too. Yeah. I mean, because he, he needed a certain creativity on the part of the actors, like bending themselves in half. So it worked out then. All right. Baseball. Uh, the Mets were on a tear. They've won two games in a row. But uh, speaking more broadly, uh, you know, the question is, can you watch these uh, things on television? Uh, and I was skeptical, but they've put in enough sound, enough background music, and they've jazzed it up a little bit. that it is kind of watchable. It is kind of fun. And there are some different aspects to it, and I'll just talk about one of them. And that is because you don't have too much sound in the background, you can hear a lot of things the players are saying. And guess what? They're cursing. The players are cursing during the games, if you can imagine that sort of behavior. Uh, there's an article in the Times about that. What are they going to do? Is the Times for it or against it? Well, the Times is wringing their hands just a little bit. Certainly Major League Baseball is. They don't want that. They, they're saying we're doing everything we can. We've talked to the players. We've talked to the coaches. We've, uh, we're using video and sound equipment, audio equipment. They're trying to edit that out, but sometimes... We just end up apologizing for it. And it could be, you know, there's so many things that happen. Whenever someone strikes out, they give the example of Jeff McNeil, McNeil, the Mets infielder. You know, he curses when he strikes out. And he says, look, I'm a fiery person. I'm hard on myself. These are not choir boys. They're not choir boys. These are men. These are athletes. They're men. They are frustrated. They put everything into it. They need to blow off steam. Well, you know, you know, the way the Times puts it, the pop of the catcher's glove is clearer, the crack of the bat is louder, and spicy language on the field is more intelligible. So if you're sitting like uh, behind, behind um, the dugout, yeah. do you hear this if you're in person? I don't know. There's so much noise in a, a stadium. I think it's you, you don't, honestly. So maybe but, we're just getting the full flavor? Well, they're getting the... Uh, they're sitting down? The, field. the guys who are striking out aren't in the dugout, but they're, you're still hearing it. So it's, it's But they're right there. There are seats, like, right behind. Yeah, they're not as base. close as you think. They're not as close as you think. Looks they're, very close can, on the television. All I know, none of this will affect Yankees pitcher Jordan Montgomery, who said he has always tried to keep his language clean, even before this year. Quote, I know my mom is watching. So there you go. <laughs> it's something they should all take into account. The other thing that I saw this week about baseball, which is interesting, has to do with the scandal, which is long forgotten, but it was all people talked about six months ago when the Houston Astros were accused and it was demonstrated that they were cheating uh, during a year that they won the World Series, cheating because they were picking up uh, what the pitch was about to be by use of computer, um, and they were communicating that to the batter, so the batter knew if it was a fastball, a curveball, whatever. Uh, that scandal was exposed by one of their players. Um, and uh, he, as you might expect, uh, came under some criticism because uh, he was a rat and he was telling on his teammates. That fellow is a name is a guy named Mike Fears who pitched for Houston. Wait a minute, he was he was on the Houston Astros when he, he was on the team, and he observed this behavior. And, and he, he reported it. He reported it while he was still an Astro. No, when he was traded to another team, he was traded so this he was year a to former Oakland. Former player. He, a former player. Okay. For, well, it's a player. You said he was a player. He's still a player. But he's, the point is he wasn't a player for the Astros anymore. He's a player for you the Oakland. You made it sound like, it, you know. you got to listen very carefully. Okay? <laughs> so the point is, so what kind of guy is Mike Fierce? And it's certainly a guy. I'm he's a, a rat. No, Hamzen, not according to the New York Times. The New York Times says this is a guy who is worthy of our admiration. And they tell his story. And interesting, his story was he was not a high school sensation. He's never thrown the ball that hard, even though he's a very large man. Um, and he went to a junior college. Then he went to a, a school, which is not a very big one, but it's a, it was a university. And then driving home one day after a game, he fell asleep at the wheel, had an accident, and broke his back. Um, and he, uh, well, wasn't <laughs> None funny. of this creates a flattering portrait. And then he uh, he went to a different school, and he managed to come back from his broken back in a way no one ever could before. He used to be admired for that. He had some success in college. He went to the minor leagues, as most people do when they start their careers professionally. He was in AAA ball, which is just under the major leagues. And he had to ask, he asked them to reassign him to a lower class of minor leagues, class A, so he could be with a team that was near the hospital where his mother was fighting cancer. How's that? 
and she spent he visited her all the time. She had her last few months, and she passed away. He eventually then he got traded to the Astros, and his third game in the major leagues, he pitched a no hitter, and he had some success with the Astros. To date, he's got two no hitters, but he's not a great pitcher. He's inconsistent. Does he curse? Uh, <laughs> I people curse him. How's that? He's heard a lot okay. of cursing. Anyway, he's an interesting guy. Uh, Mike Fears. A rat. Uh, but a good rat. Yes, okay. okay. I, that was All right, so I have a kind of a funny, sad story. Yes. Um, museum update. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. This time we're in Italy at the Gypsoteca, yeah. which is near Venice. Mm-hmm. And it's a museum that houses the um, uh, plaster casts, the working materials of uh, the... Uh, late uh, 18th, early 19th century sculptor Antonio Canova. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it turns out a tourist from Austria, on a trip uh, celebrating his 50th birthday, yes. okay, um, decides uh, to have a picture taken with one of these sculptures. Okay, so somebody, there's a, a picture in the New York Times of someone taking a picture of this 50-year-old gentleman leaning against a sculpture of a semi-nude Venus, okay, lounging in the same position she's lounging, and a picture is being taken. It turns out that as he did that, uh, and he seems not to have known that this happened, he broke two toes off the sculpture. As okay. one does. Well, of course, it was plaster, yes, right? It say. wasn't marble. Right. So plaster breaks. Right. So, and this was a sculpture of Pauline Borghese. Mm-hmm. Okay. Pauline Bonaparte, actually. She was Napoleon's little sister. And she marries a Borghese. Why? Borghese is a famous name, right? right? Borghese Gallery, you know, prominent Italian family. Okay. Why did they get married? She was pregnant. No, she had money. Oh, okay. She was right. pregnant. They weren't remotely interested <laughs> in each other. I see. And uh, Camillo, right. her husband, Camillo Borghese, commissioned this sculpture uh, from uh, Canova. Mm. It was originally supposed to be clothed, okay? Don't you think that's bizarre that somebody would be depicted in the nude in a big sculpture that's in a museum? Uh, no, I, I was kind of concentrating on the toes problem, but uh, yeah. No, okay, it's a sure. nude sculpture. All right. You know, imagine having a, a commissioning a nude sculpture of your wife. I well, don't it, imagine that. I can't unsee that now. It's worse um, the guy yeah. sitting on top of it. I mean, he's sitting on top of a yeah, nude sculpture. Yeah, don't people know they're not supposed to touch sculptures? Well, but even a nude sculpture makes it even that much more ominous. Who sits on top he's of a He's leaning nude next to her. Uh, you, you know, know you, you can't really excuse this kind of behavior. Right? Um, yeah. Anyway, so you're, you're curious, and you know, so it brings to mind all these interesting things about. Do you know Canova's sculptures at all? Uh, no. Um, you know, sort of neoclassical, um, mm. Mm. kind of uh, like a. Um, think of Bernini. You know Bernini. Right? Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> Big, powerful, yeah. dramatic oh, sculptures. Exactly. Bernini, but with a case of erectile dysfunction. Oh, tabs in place. Let's okay, move on. Okay, there, there's something. Can we move you know, on. You're I, losing it. I'm not losing it, but Canova did. Um, anyway, uh, so um, Canova. he was very popular at the time. Okay, but then we, you know we forget about him. But he has—he's got stuff all over. You can know, the Met to, and see his can Perseus can and Medusa. The guy breaks the toes. Yeah, and, 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 and uh, you know they cert- they hunted him down, oh, and right. he and he wrote a he wrote an apology. Right, he said, goodness. "I didn't know this happened. I'm sorry that it did." I'll, I, I don't know what I need to do now, but just let me know, okay? But the moral of the story is, okay, yeah. keep your hands off the sculptures, yeah. even if they're alluring nude sculptures in a small town in Italy, okay? Right. It, just because it's a small little museum doesn't mean you can sit on the sculptures. I didn't ask him to contribute some toes or something like that. It could have been, uh, it sounds like that kind of well, story. Well, all of this stuff has been busted uh, before. Oh, it, okay. It uh, it got hit during World War One. Um, it, uh, it got 
the stuff got hidden in World War II, there were, but there were many restorations. So um, it's not the first time poor Pauline has uh, had her toes broken. All right. Like. So there are a couple of theater type things. Uh, one is a fellow passed away by the name of Leon Fleischer, uh, spellbinding pianist using one hand. Or two, or it, two says. it says. But one hand is the lead, dies at 92. And it's just an interesting story. I'm not really uh, knowledgeable about pianists. He apparently was a highly successful pianist. Again, he died at the age of 92. He was pretty much a child prodigy. So that goes way back and performed a wide repertory of, wide repertory of works, very much acclaimed uh, from a young age. And then uh, a huge setback. Uh, after playing quite successfully for 20, 25 years, he noticed that he was having trouble with his right hand, uh, and ultimately he lost the use of his right hand. And he says that the reason was it was from too much playing. He was practicing seven or eight hours a day, and in his case, doing that 25 years was putting his hand out of commission. He had carpal right. tunnel, he had things on top of carpal tunnel, and whatever. And he went through a long period where he couldn't use his right hand. Uh, he still performed. And here's something that I didn't realize. There's a left-handed repertory. There are, there are a whole bunch of pieces that emphasize, if not or exclusively, the left hand. And I'll only bring one example of, of, of uh, those kind of pieces because those are written by Paul Wittgenstein. Paul Wittgenstein was the brother of Ludwig Wittgenstein, the great philosopher. And Paul Wittgenstein lost his right arm during World War I. Uh, and uh, so he had uh, developed some uh, left-handed repertory. Anyway, he played and performed with just his left hand for years. Uh, he was also teaching, and he was also conducting. Ultimately, he um, he got the use of his right hand back almost 100% through what's called rolfing, which is a kind of massage, and Botox combination of the two. I mean, he's tried a zillion treatments of things, and this is the one that eventually worked. Uh, and he started performing again with both hands. But uh, it's a quite an interesting story. As he said, he summed it up. Uh, he said, look, there are forces out there. And if you keep yourself open to them, if you go along with them, there are wondrous surprises. So he turned Good it around. Advice. Yes. Uh, and there was an article, a very brief article. Well, brief in terms of content, not length. Uh, Graying Audiences are a Lifeline by Tony Tomasini, who's the... Um, classical music uh, critic of the times, uh, about uh, the concern that's often expressed that uh, classical music and Broadway and serious theater uh, rely on older patrons. Well, the yeah, well yeah. Every time we go to anything. Right. And uh, we're not young. Right. We're at the well, young well, end of the scale on the right, audience. We're right there. We're in the younger bit. But it seems like there are a lot of people in walkers, and you just, you just look around and you see... The average age is quite old. There are a lot of statistics backing this up, but he has those in the article. I won't give them to you now, but they're exactly what you'd expect. Just, well, the subscribers are older. Most of the people in the audience are older. And he's, he's concentrating primarily on classical music, except here's what's interesting about that. He says, maybe we shouldn't be concerned. Why? Because it's always been the case. He says, look, if you go back and you look at uh, films of concerts of years ago, going back to even Leonard Bernstein or even before that in the 50s, uh, when you had a lot of films of live concerts, it, the audience is old. Uh, and then if you want to look at statistics, they actually did a survey in 2002, which is almost 20 years ago, and uh, a study commissioned by 15 orchestras found that about half of those ensemble subscribers were 65 or older, and that 17% were 75 or older. And what this tells you is that it's not a matter of uh, there's a group of people they're all, now when those people are gone, there's no one to replace them. What it really tells you is, you know what happens? People don't like this kind of music necessarily when they're 25 or 35, but they grow into it, grow toward it, so that uh, on a regular basis, as people reach a particular age, they're more drawn to this kind of music, they're more drawn to this kind of theater, they're more open to it, and that's your audience. So there are always going to be people in their 50s and their 60s, there are always going to be an audience for this sort of thing. You're shaking uh, your head. I, yeah, I, I don't, uh, I doubt that that's really the case. With Tony okay? Tomasini. Yeah, Tony. but listen, it, Tony, <laughs> <laughs> look at any film of people. Yeah. They, you know, you look at older films, 
people always look older. Yeah. Okay. You think he's wrong? Yeah. Even when we look at movies, you know how people are people are dressed up. People who are clearly supposed to be thirty five are dressed up to go out yeah. or something, and they look like people who are seventy five. Okay. Right. Um, that's uh, so you're not. So I, it. No, I. The, he mail, he. I'm sure he's right about 2002, right? And whatever numbers they have, right? Okay, but uh, I'm not so convinced that he's accurate historically. Okay, okay. I, I mean, uh, a lot of the the opera music, the classical music, was written a long time ago, and it makes some sense that it appealed to different generations, and that kind of loses something over time, perhaps. I don't know. Or, or maybe it's the activity. I think there's more work to be done. I would be delighted if uh, it means we don't have to be worried, that there will be no audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I'm, you know, the idea that people, you know, people in old films about this look old <laughs> doesn't really um, right, well, ring my data we'll chimes. At least it's an alternative theory. All right, so what we're going to do next is we're going to have Zeke join us for a couple of topics. Yes. Uh, that Young uh, person's topics. Yeah, we thought needed his input. And so uh, here we go with Zeke's participation. Well, so here we are with Zeke. All right, and uh, we have a couple of topics that uh, just screamed to me. <laughs> That uh, Zeke should chime in on this. Yes. Hello. And uh, what? <laughs> See, that's Zeke screaming to us. Are you are you excited, Zeke? I'm so excited. Yes. All right, Zeke. Contain yourself. So the first one is an unusual subject. So let's see if we can make this one go. And it's unusual. Well, it's a un- throne for gamers it's, and office workers too. It's about a chair. It's about they're designing chairs for professional gamers. Okay, like. Noah Francis, a 22-year-old professional Counter-Strike player for Team Envy, who went pro at age 15 and goes by the name Nifty. Okay? Yes. Uh, Chairs are being designed for these guys. They have all kinds of problems. It's not unusual for a professional gamer to be in a seat for 13 hours at a time. Wow. Wow. Okay? I yeah. mean, I think the non-professionals are in the seat for even longer. See, do you watch this kind of stuff at all? Not I'm regularly. Sure. I'm not, uh, I don't really follow sports or esports, but uh, occasionally, occasionally, there, there's really? some, like if I have played a game a decent amount, I might be curious to see how the pros do it. Yeah. And- okay. And do they, uh, how do they look in their chairs? They look okay? They look great. They look so comfortable. <laughs> no, uh, apparently. They're not. Apparently, you're, you're deceived. Well, here's the thing. Here's yeah. the thing. So this article is about, it starts out setting the scene of a couple of middle-aged ergonomic specialists uh, sitting there watching as a team of professional gamers sit hunched over in swivel chairs. You know, they, these gamers have reported pain in their necks, their lower backs, their hips, their wrists, their shoulders, carpal tunnel. It was a common complaint, and most of them are not yet 20. Okay? We're over 50, said John Aldrich, vice president of advanced engineering at Herman Miller. We don't know anything about gaming. Watching millionaire, watching multi-millionaire 19-year-olds playing games was not what I expected to do with my career. Okay. But it turns out there's a whole genre of gaming chairs. Now, I love chairs. So, of course, I'm interested in this. And you know Herman Miller. Herman Miller makes the Ames chair, right? right? Okay. The famous uh, lounging chair. And, um... Apparently, these chairs started out as uh, race car chairs, right? Because it's the whole concept of these gamers are, you know, almost like they're driving race cars. And so the early ones, the early ones from the early 2000s were just seats taken out of race cars and put on a support. Okay. And then that got, uh, you know, more and more finessed. But now Herman Miller is getting into the act, all right? But in any case, what's interesting to me that, um, you know, first of all, 
it's always fun to talk about these gamers, the idea of these young kids who are making gazillion dollars doing this and, and have such a following. But it's very sad that they're suffering physically for this. Yeah, I mean, Zeke, have you uh, noticed that? These guys, do you know anything about this? That these guys are suffer injuries and that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, it's interesting, some of the, the training that they note in the article. Um, for example, they, they note the uh, psychological trainers that these teams will have. And I've seen some headlines about uh, basically mental breakdowns of some of these uh, um, esports performers. They... Uh, you know they're they're young people, and some of them are like really unprepared for taking on. I mean, any kind of profession, let alone uh, one with such like high pressure to win. Um, so I've noticed stuff like that. Uh, they're also just funny little details. If you watch any of these broadcasts about uh, the the ergonomics of what they're doing, um, sometimes it'll just be like a, a sponsored chair. Uh, so everyone you know everyone gets the the same chair. Everyone on the team is kind of using the same sort of chair. Um, but there'll be funny little other details like. Uh, they'll have these little packets that they'll rub between their hands. And for a while I was like, what are, why do they all have these little packets that they are rubbing against their hands? It turns out there are chemicals in those packets to create warmth. So they're trying to keep their hands warm all the time. So <laughs> like a pitcher, keep yeah. his arm warm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they, they don't want like all their, all their finger and wrist joints to cool down too much. They want to stay loose uh, the whole time. And that, that kind of thing, they're really, you know, taking into account but also these the these injuries with like uh wrists and hands um and backs and necks uh really i think those are not just uh, professional gamer injuries more and more those are just everybody's injuries because who yeah. you know who isn't working behind a desk who isn't uh you know in many cases now even working from home one thing i've noticed as someone yeah, right, who works from right. home is that when i use my standing desk and i have it at the appropriate height uh, i do pretty well i don't see this so much but recently i've i've just been like uh using i've been using my computer on on the couch or uh just elsewhere on some other chair in my apartment and my wrist pain has really been acting up i don't know if it rises to the level of uh carpal tunnel but there's probably some tendonitis there um and that's really just from using a computer for several hours a day and i think that's a very common experience now yeah, but mainly they're saying, first of all, I mean, you're hardly a kid. You're not as young as these guys, but mm -hmm. uh, they shouldn't be experiencing these kind of pains. And hopefully the chairs will help with that. But Daniel, you did a story a few months ago about the kind of training, physical training, yeah. that uh, these uh, some of these gamers are beginning to do. And of course, we just, uh, you weren't here for the first part of uh, the podcast, but uh, Dad talks about a um, pianist who lost the use of one of his hands uh, because of repetitive, uh, you know, because of the use of over overuse of it. Um, mm. So all these things can be a risk. But it, it just it's interesting to me. First of all, what I didn't mention about Herman Miller and doing all these ergonomic studies was this uh, whole project um, of designing the gaming chair, the great gaming chair is uh, a um, joint venture with Logitech. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, who they do all kinds of uh, computing uh, accessories kind of thing. So that's interesting. And, and so this article mentions this is big money now. Okay. Um, the As I said before, the, you know, it's uh, the um, seats were designed to be flashy, not so much ergonomic, well, Miller, okay? Uh, and uh, the jazzy ones with the racing stripes, you know, maybe they sell for 100 800 bucks. Now, Herman Miller's coming up with something that's going to be 1500 yeah. well, to 2000 But like everything else, sales have skyrocketed during this spring because people are sitting at desks, you know, working on computers. So whether you're a gamer or whether you're, you know, just a um, executive or just, you know, somebody working remote. Apparently, these have an allure. And that would be great if they do, um, you know, make people feel better being stuck at the desk. Okay. All right, Zeke. So we also had an article that causes us to think of you that had something to do with e-bikes. A fellow who started his own e-bike empire, so-called Rad Bikes. Did you take a look at that? Yeah. So... 
I own an e-bike, uh, as does my lovely wife. Uh, we haven't been using them much uh, recently. Mine actually kind of broke down over time. The, the motor, something's wrong with it now, so I haven't been riding it so much. But uh, over the past few years, we've used them quite a bit. For a while, they were our main mode of transportation. Uh, e-bikes are very handy. Well, you were both uh, commuting to work, right? Yeah, that's how we would commute to work. Um, and uh, I don't know if I would I would use it necessarily for a super long commute, but for like a, a short or, you know, even a, a medium-sized commute to some extent, like uh, I think they can be very handy. And... Uh, what I found interesting in this particular article, this is you know talking about Mike Radenbau and uh, his rad power bikes. Um, it's interesting to me that uh, his company is an example of one that is bringing the price point of e-bikes down. So uh, the bikes that we have, I think, were about two thousand dollars each, wow. and when we bought them uh, like three years ago, that was. For for I guess for many for a good portion of the market that was that seemed like it was on the lower end that seemed like that was the kind of more affordable end and it made sense for us because we we were doing that instead of buying a car at that time so if that could be our main mode of transportation for a couple of years and it was that felt like a, an economical thing to do um, but it's interesting that Rad Power Bikes has been building models that are more like uh, more in the like one thousand to fifteen hundred dollar price range. And they note in the article that some folks have speculated that's a key reduction in price to create wider adoption. You know, these products are already popular and to some extent they're accessible already at like $2,000 or $2,500, but they're much more accessible if it's more like $1,000 or $1,500. Yeah, that's um, well, Yeah. I think in the article it says they are the largest e-bike company in the U.S. Really? Yeah, they had sales of $100 million. Wow. Last year. Wow. Okay. But, you know, I was looking at the article, Zeke. I don't know if you looked at the comments uh, with the Times article online. Oh, I didn't see that. What are, what are people saying uh, in the comments? And a lot of people were saying, uh, you know, a lot of people were disparaging and saying, uh, you know, the, these are motorcycles. They, you know, they sh- they shouldn't be allowed without licenses right. and regulation and so on. Ah, but yes, a the fair comments. amount of people said, uh, well, they looked at these bikes. We The... Um, the bike they talk about in the article is like is I guess the Rad Runner, and the Rad Wagon, mm-hmm. and uh, they said I would not be interested in this, mm-hmm. you know, um, because it looks it uh, looks uh, clunky yeah. and utilitarian, which is pretty much what they were trying to do. They they said they were trying to build the Volkswagen Beetle of uh, right. e bikes. Something that was serviceable and, uh, you know. Yeah, but I agree with that. I wouldn't be interested either. I mean, the the e-bikes that are interesting to me are the ones that look like bicycles. And they're very well disguised. And you can't even tell they're an e-bike. They have the battery along the stem. It's long and it's thin. And you can have a normal bike riding experience. And you could jump into some powerful assist if you're a terribly high hill. But you're primarily a bicycle. And uh, that has a lot of appeal and interest to me. The idea of this, this is just different, and I guess it's for different purposes or different uses. This is totally utilitarian. How am I going to get from point A no, to point they B? They have other models that are sexier. Well, they also have a folding model. Yeah, well, that, that's okay. something models a step backwards for me, too. I mean, I, I all I'm saying is I, I like the e-bikes that are made by bicycle companies. I don't know. A folding model could be useful if you're getting on, like, a commuter train or the subway or something? Yeah, no, not, in the, no. not the subway. Okay, if you're getting on a commuter train or a bus maybe, and you want to hop off and you have to do the rest I of the commute? I've seen those. They sound better than they are. But I mean... No, I, I like the Rad Wagon 4. It can hold people. Right. It can hold groceries. Well, by the delivery it, route, that's where I would go. Okay. But, uh, no. but in terms of riding... They, they do yeah. have sleeker models. And okay. they have their newest model is only going to cost... Like nine ninety nine. Really? Yeah. I'd have to pay for um, that. But yeah. you can't get one. Oh, is that right? No, they only sell direct. Yeah. And uh, when I went online, it said the, the earliest you can get these bikes is like October. Right. Yeah, you can't get one because everyone wants one. Everyone's already yeah, ordered. Yeah, well, them. that's good. That's good. But that's I, good I also them. think it's worth noting. I think part of the reason that people are comfortable getting them is because, uh, you know, they they're clunky chic. You know, they. Oh, uh, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's I, mean, a California I really thing think the, the the Volkswagen Beetle is an interesting comparison here because the Volkswagen Beetle may have 
seemed like just a, a small and and you know budget-minded kind of invention at first, but now yeah. uh, you know over time it has become really iconic for its aesthetic, and people who want to have beetles want to have them because of how they look, and so I think there's a similar dynamic here where uh, at first you might think okay, but I you know if I want if I'm mainly comfortable with bikes, but I want to get an e-bike, I'm more comfortable if it if it looks like regular bike but if you say you know what i wouldn't have commuted on a bike i was not close to doing this as as a big part of my transportation uh suite but now i'm going to get this totally different kind of product and i'm excited to get it from you know this manufacturer who has these design principles maybe i'm okay with it looking weirder maybe i'm interested yeah. in something that kind of stands out the rad wagon as they display it on their website uh, I guess maybe this is their like, default color or just like the color that they like to promote is bright orange. And I think that there's like a person who will buy a bright orange vehicle, you know, has different priorities about, you know, why they're buying that vehicle than someone uh, who really wants it to be like gray, silver, black, something like that. Yeah. Um, the, the guy kitted out in the Lycra on the road bike. It's not interested That's in. Me. I'm kidding. Uh, out. This, I'm, you, you, this but you know, one more, one other interesting note about this. Okay, yeah. so Mike Radenbau yeah. is 30 years old. Oh, you're kidding. He's running a company yeah. that has a hundred million dollars in yeah, sale annually, yeah. and it's killing him. Yeah, it, it's no easy thing. Uh, there's a you know, uh, there's a remark in the article not. It's not easy steering a transportation revolution. And he says most nights he goes home, his brain feels beat to pieces. And that's true. I mean, uh, you know, it's uh, he's a guy who tinkered in the garage uh, when he was 15 years old and came up with, you know, his own transportation and built it into a product that sells. But now he's got all these other things he's got to deal with, you know, that's involved with running a multi-million dollar venture. So those Herman Miller chairs, I think that would that would do it for him. He could relax. So the right, last so story, they should get Herman Miller involved to make these uh, make these bikes more comfortable, right? I mean, I've got to think about uh, yeah. the ergonomics of the electric bike. Uh, yeah. I'm sure he's thought about that a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. He's pretty busy. No, I don't think he, so, I don't think he wants it to cost a thousand more dollars. I, I think yeah, they probably well, that's don't true. Want to do that. If the chair costs twelve hundred and the bike costs nine ninety nine, there's some some economic principle at work here that I can't identify. Um, okay, so the final thing we're going to talk about is this movie that I, that uh, we watched here, and I think you got a chance to watch it in California, Zeke, mm-hmm. which is an American pickle, which is the Seth Rogen movie uh, directed by Brandon Trost. Uh, and the story, quite simply, uh, is, well, it's a little hard to imagine, but in any event... It's uh, about time travel. It's, well, it's not really about time travel. It's really about the juxtaposition of two different generations of folks. Uh, the fellow in the present day lives in Brooklyn and is sort of a web developer type. Uh, He's you know, a mobile developer, hat. all right? Yeah, yeah mobile developer, whatever. And, uh, and his <laughs> great-grandfather... Who came from a country called uh, Shlupsk or a city called Shlupsk, which is like an Atefkin fiddler on the roof. He's, he's an old Russian type who was transplanted to the New World by virtue of falling into a large vat of pickle brine. Uh, put aside the rationale there, the logic there. In any event, you now have the two of them who are really effectively the same age living in the present day. And it's about uh, how their relationship goes and what happens to them. Uh, so, what do you guys think? What do you think, Deke? I liked it. I liked the movie. It's it's basically being able to. Was he his great grandfather or his great great grandfather? I thought it was great. Yeah, I think it's one great. So it, yeah, and uh, it's being able to meet your ancestor well in person. I don't think that's what it's about, but I mean that certainly is what happens. Well, yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, sharing, you know, confronting uh, who you are, who they are, yes, etc. All that. I agree with that. I, look, I think one of the questions is, what is the movie about? I mean, I thought it was okay. I, you guys might have liked it a little more than I did, but it was it was fine. Um, and uh, but uh, I'm wondering what you thought it was about because I read the review in the Times and I thought uh, uh, Anthony Scott missed it entirely. Um, Anthony Scott says, "Ao Scott, Ao Scott." What he he says uh, the movie's about what makes them them both coming well. 
It's about what makes them both Jews. I'm reading from Scott now. The answer turns out to be simple. Uh, the shared obligation to mourn the dead. And I don't think that's what the movie was about at all. But but I'm interested in your views. What did you think the movie was about? I really thought this was a, a universal tale that everyone can relate to about uh, a 30-something fella uh, who has lived in Brooklyn, who's a mobile developer, who's thinking about his great-grandfather who moved from Eastern Europe to uh, the U.S. in the early part of the 20th century and uh, immigrated through Ellis Island and wondering about how, uh, you know, generations change and Judaism changes over generations. You know, I think that's an experience we've all had uh, and uh, we can all, you know, closely relate to it. So when I look at it, I think it's not strictly, you know, focused on the questions of Judaism and, and uh, mourning, but uh, those are components that uh, really, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're one of like, they're two of several components that this movie seems to be concerned with that are all kind of uh, hung on this conceit of combining uh, generations. And so, like, uh, to me, that stuff is interesting. I don't know if it reaches any, you know, earth-shaking or super profound statements about any of those issues, but at the very least, it was engaging for me because it was uh, dealing with them. You know, there are all these little, like, rifts or uh, overlaps between these characters where, like, you know, the one from the previous generation is much more religious and that's kind of a rift between them. But also they relate to each other as folks trying to make it in like the, the you know, tough world of the American economy. And they have a lot in common in that regard. They have things in common about how they deal with family, but they also don't necessarily see family the same way. Like the, the character from the new generation is more able to uh, kind of distract himself with uh, technology and consumerism and you know pop culture to an extent that's a little bit disturbing to the uh, older generation but uh, yeah it's basically I, basically what I found compelling about it is how they they go through each of these you know little issues seeing kind of what's the same what's different and and pondering uh, what connections are there and it is funny sometimes right? yeah. it is yeah funny. it's funny and uh, and it's not uh, it's not totally predictable i mean no it, it's, it's not, not like totally uh you know the um grandfather is old and wise and no. perfect and etc et and for, so forth it's not like they fall immediately into some wonderful warm fuzzy relationship i mean it uh, yeah. it has its. well look i think i think i see it the way zeke sees it honestly so i'm not going to repeat what he said i think that's a fair assessment i, just, I don't know if you saw the article in today's paper zeke there was an interview with seth rogan I did it. see that. Yeah. And he, he said at one point, um, to the extent he addressed this, one of the things he said at least was a little bit about what the older generation would think of the younger generation. And he says that uh, his, I think he was talking about his own grandfather, let's say, who's from the old country, in his case, the Ukraine, uh, was not impressed by the fact that he was making films. What he was impressed was the fact that you go to McDonald's and as he put it, steal all the napkins and you wouldn't get in trouble uh, just because of the different background and experience. And that was really striking to him. And I can tell you, I don't mind saying, that my grandfather was totally not impressed, not interested in what I did for a living. Uh, didn't mean anything to him. And I don't criticize him for it. It's just it's not something he can relate to. It came from a different world. And uh, uh, he just had a totally different frame of reference. Uh, and I also think that the, the older generation comes off better than the younger generation in the movie. I don't know if you felt that way too, Zeke, but the older generation, the guy was, uh, was active. He was aggressive. He initiated. And the younger generation, the kid, uh, in Brooklyn seemed passive. Uh, and he suffered by comparison. Did you react that way also or not? Yeah, I thought at times, you know, I wouldn't say that that like portrayal seemed entirely fair. If you want to read it as as just you know being focused on those on, like generational stereotypes, it seems yeah. you know like the movie seemed harsh in that way because in in the film, in the time it takes uh, the uh, older uh, Greenbaum to build a pickle empire in Brooklyn yeah. to start with nothing and then have a thriving business selling pickles. Uh, the younger generation has only tweaked the user interface of his app. That's all that's happened in the same time. <laughs> frame. Um, and 
I think that like, uh, yeah, that's like a bit of like a, you know, a comic exaggeration, I think, by the movie. And we could argue about the finer points, but I think it's not necessarily supposed to be uh, taken as like a, a firm claim about exactly like the, the essential character of the generations. Uh, I do think there's a risk of making it seem like, oh, anyone from the past would just tear through the modern world and know everything to do. Um, but like they do a good job of undercutting that message a little bit by showing some of the ways in which the older Greenbaum stumbles in the modern world, things he doesn't understand. Uh, shows, showing some ways in which his perspective is dated or just really sheltered in a way. Like he doesn't, he's, he's not really quite ready for a, a diverse world where people don't want you to say horrible things to other people who are different from you. Um, right. there, are, there are, you know, details like that that are compelling. But it's, it's really interesting to see a movie that is dealing with like a generational comparison while also, I guess, controlling for the idea of the, uh, I guess, like, uh, controlling for the idea of age in a weird way. Like, I almost feel like you could make a similar movie where, you know, they just cast a much older actor to play the older fellow. And, you know, maybe he didn't fall in a vat of pickles, whatever. Just have someone, you know, trying to talk about business with their grandfather or great-grandfather. And I think the dynamic would be very different and it wouldn't be as compelling because, you would, uh, you know, you, you would miss out on some things like a, an older person just has a different lifestyle from a younger person and that's going to shape their experience. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but I think it's I think it's also worth noting what you said that that difference of activity, that it's like uh, it's kind of just fun also seeing this character from this other generation uh, being so gung ho and being so like physical and aggressive and ready to take action. Um, to me, that's kind of refreshing because I think that Actually, some folks have kind of a, a misunderstanding of history that everything, you know, because it's old and musty now was old and musty then when, of course, it wasn't. Yeah, good point. Um, good point. So it's it's fun to see characters from like, you know, your own kind of like family history in this very like vital and and vibrant uh, light. Right. All right. All right. So that was uh, an interesting uh, discussion. Yes. <laughs> So we're glad we had you here, Zeke. Yes. And now we're going to um, scamper outside and uh, do a little barbecuing yes, before the summer ahead. is over. We're, we're at dinner time, Zeke. We're three hours ahead. Sounds delicious. Thanks right. for joining us, Zeke. And uh, otherwise, so, this is Dan Abuhop. And Tamsin Granger with uh, Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. We'll be back again next week. Who knows who will show up? Ooh. See you, Zeke. Exciting. See you there. Goodbye. Bye.